Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith, and this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 12. Hello. We're here. We're here still. (laughs) (laughs) It's 12. Everything's going great, right? We're great. We're great. We're great, except for I have a couple of corrections. Uh, Oh, Jen, what did you do? sorry. Okay, a couple of weeks ago, I... Um, so I just listened to it and I was like, what? That makes no sense. What I said, <laughs> the Pastor James story. Yes. The one um, where he and his wife took him. Um, yeah, Marie. And okay. then, um, so I, I, at the end I had mentioned about how he, they were, he said that they were alone in the house and I said he was hitting her. And I, I meant to say when they were alone in the house, he said that, um, she was hitting him. So he bear, bear hugged her to stop her. And that's how he okay. accidentally suffocated. That's his story. Yeah. It's bullshit. But <laughs> I, I accidentally said she was hitting him, so it didn't make any sense. But um, So if you're wondering why, yeah. I was a mistake, and I'm sorry. And um, the other thing, this isn't really a correction, but my husband this morning pointed out to me, he's like, hey, I was just listening to your podcast, and the one about <laughs> you hurting the goats. And he was like, I saw it was like, really weird that you just kept referring to you and Frank, our dog, as yeah. we, like he's a person. Like you're like, and then we went into the road and then we did this and she didn't even thank us. And I'm like, well, he is a person. Right. He herded the goats. He was a hero of the story yeah. and he needs to be regarded as such. Right? She couldn't give him like a, like a good boy. Yeah. He's a good boy. I don't think that's weird that I said we. Do you think it's weird that like I included my dog? Your dog like, is we. we. Us. Um, and my dog. I don't know. I'm not an animal person. Okay. I don't have any pets. So. so you thought it was weird and you didn't say anything? No, I didn't even notice. Okay. So I, I, I don't think I, I didn't think it was weird, but I also, I don't know. Okay. I don't know if I would have noticed. Well, I stand by it. Well, your, so your first correction actually made me think that you guys probably have noticed that we sometimes get things wrong. Yes, we do. Um, because we're comedians and not journalists. And yes. But we do research all of our stories, and so if, if you are interested in learning more and maybe, you know, letting us know where we're wrong, um, we always put our sources on our website, which is dumblovepodcast.com, and I mean, go check out the website. I worked really hard on it, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yes, like Sally said, you can see all of our credits and resources on our website, and we'll be better about qu- uh, citing them, too, on our, right, well, yeah, as on, we our, on the podcast, yeah, as we, we go. be better about that, just um, so you know. Yeah, just to, you know, give credit to the people who are doing the actual work, which, I mean, I, you know, have been a freelancer for years, and I I obviously really respect uh, journalists and writers and people who do amazing, especially investigative research, um, which is a lot of what we're, the articles we're looking at, so um, they should get their due because they are underpaid and overworked, and, um, and if we can, you know, shine any light on the work they're doing, then we should, and also, you know, for legal reasons. Yeah. And so to be clear, we are not a news source. No, please, please do not get us. your news from us. <laughs> We're just a couple of dumb idiots <laughs> with a podcast. Yep. We just have access to the internet like everybody else. <laughs> yes. Dude. Um, okay. So we got all that stuff out of the way. Are we right. ready for a quickie? I'm ready for quickies. Okay. You go first. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Do you ever get ready to go like in the morning? And then realize, like, you have... I know you probably don't dress your kids anymore, but, like, realize that your kid is dressed exactly like you. Um, Like, unintentionally or... Very rarely. Very rarely. I feel like yeah. it happens all the time. And I, it's mostly because, I mean, I buy, like, uh, 90% of our clothes at Old Navy, and they're uh-huh. all, like, the same color palette. And, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. That so makes sense. Ben, Max, and the I... same patterns. Yes. All yeah. have, like, we're all pretty much in, like, blue, gray... Black, white, that's about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> like that is our, that that's is what we are all. Palette. And so there are like a lot of times where Ben will be like, really? And I'll look over at Max and I'll both be wearing like 
black shorts and a gray top. And I'm like, I didn't, it wasn't on purpose. (laughs) I swear it wasn't. And like, it happens to Ben and I all the time too. And he will like immediately turn around and go back in. That has never happened to me and Zach. Really? No. (laughs) I dress very, uh, how do you say? Schlubbly? No, you don't. (laughs) Like, and I think probably like more like in, in dry, not androgynous is not the right word, but I wear a lot. We, we, we all wear, wear basics. You wear a lot basics, of basics. Yes. Like okay. plain t-shirts, jeans. Like that's right. pretty much my, my uniform. And I'm in like halter tops and mini skirts every day. Yes. Well, that's what I was going to say. You're like, so you dress like, uh, <laughs> I'm, kidding, like a, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You dress like a five-year-old in a beauty pageant. <laughs> I am dressed like a brat stall. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> With the tiaras and... <laughs> Everything's bedazzled and uh, and like yeah, the five-year-old pageant cowboy hats on the <laughs> rag. Sparkle, sparkles. Sorry, yes. I'm just imagining you with a sparkly cowboy hat, um, and it's <laughs> giving me life. I so how do you feel given that you guys don't do that? How do you feel about like couples who dress like or kids that dress that? Parents that dress their kids not like. into it. Not into I, okay. Like on, I guess like for a Christmas card, I get it. Yeah. For like a family photo, like I get it. Right. If you want to wear like the same color scheme. Yeah. Or palette, I get it. But like, I like families that all dress in the same outfit just for like just for the heck of it. On yeah, like for an outing. Yeah. <laughs> not I for just it. don't. I'm no. I'm not, but I mean, I also like, do your thing, man. I don't care. Yeah. But I don't, it's not for me. It's not for you. Yeah. I like, I'm, I am curious how you'll feel about this story. Okay. About my quickie, because I had very strong feelings like you when I first read about oh, it. Oh, so you're going to make me feel like a piece of shit again. Like, this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, yeah, maybe that's like my goal you in life. You ask me questions, <laughs> you get me all riled up and then you... <laughs> Make me feel guilty. Like, so bring Jen, it. What about these, this adorable couple who's doing Maybe this thing didn't you hate? Maybe consider feeling. So. Okay, hit me. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't realize that was what, what I was doing, but I totally was. <laughs> I'm like, Jen, say something horrible. <laughs> okay, so Francis and Rosemary Klotz have been married for 68 years. Aww. And every day for those 68 years, they've been wearing matching outfits. Is it like I'm with stupid t-shirts with the arrow? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no. So they met in junior high and Francis, who's the man, I just, I know that's similar. It can go either way. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Ben, my husband, his grandparents were both named Francis. Francis Lady and Francis Guy. Really? And that's his middle my name. My sister's middle name is Francis. I love the name Francis. And her social security number. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but so Francis said when he saw her in middle, in junior high, he was like, I thought she was the cutest little thing. And then by the time they were seniors, they were officially going steady. And Rosemary's mother, while they were going out, bought them matching shirts. So they were still teenagers and they got matching shirts. And Rosemary actually later says, I told her to. Oh, really? And then apparently went over so well that the two have been matching every day since. Oh my gosh, that's a big commitment. Right? Every morning, Rosemary lays out Francis's outfit (gasps) and he thinks it's great. He's like, I don't have to do, I don't have to worry about a thing. And so not only do they match like, the two of them, but they also like harmonize perfectly. They're like actually really, really good. Like, um, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> like they sing together. They sing together. No, I was kidding. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, yeah, they sing in like church and at hospitals. Oh wow. And like, so you hear about this story, and it's like, what is fucking ridiculous, right? Like, can you imagine laying out your husband's? Like clothes ever, ever. Okay, now you're gonna tell me like he's blind or something. And no, be- no, <laughs> okay. but it's just, you know, you see them, there's like a video, we'll post it okay. of them like sitting in their matching walkers Aww. and they're like harmonizing, singing, and they just are holding hands the whole time looking super in love, and you're just like, well, it's really cute. Yeah, like, they're like really if, cute. They, if that, hey, if that makes them happy and they're in love, then that's cool. And, but it, I feel just, like it's only cute because they've been married for 68 years because right. they're in their 80s. Like, if it was like two 25 year olds, <laughs> you'd be like, 
get the fuck it's like out of here. Tyler and Jenna. Right. Like if your friend was like, oh yeah, I totally put out Mark's clothing every <laughs> right. morning for him and we look the same, you'd be like, you're a psychopath. Totally. What is wrong with him? What is wrong? Maybe it's just a different era. Like I maybe guess. Cutesy yeah. stuff was, I don't know. Uh, so I don't, I know, I'm not going to I just, they are very, they're a really cute couple. That is so funny. Well, I mean, good for them and good for them for being together so long. I yes. think after a certain point, you can wear whatever the hell you want. Yeah. As long as it's not like, you know, hate speech. Right. Like a, a swastika. Yeah. <laughs> no swastika. No swastikas. You got a quickie? I do have a quickie. Who is your biggest celebrity crush? Oh, Okay. Um, what's the guy? I don't know if this is my biggest celebrity crush, but what's the guy from Justified? Timothy Oliphant. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he's, he's a good one. He's pretty hot. He's real good. Yeah. I'm going to um, go with that. I, don't, I, wouldn't, I, I just am I'm bad about thinking of those, but that's, that's my go-to right now. Right. I, I, I have, like, um, phases. Yeah. Like, you know, like, I went through a really big uh, Charlie Hunman. Is that how you say it? From Sons of Anarchy. Jax Teller. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's real hot. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I but changed my Right mind. now yeah. I'm going through a Jason Bateman thing. Oh, okay. I'm really into Jason Bateman. Yeah. I don't know. He just looks like a really good listener. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm into it. Um, so, okay. Would, what would be the craziest thing you would ever do for Timothy Oliphant? What would you do for him? What would I do for him? Yeah. Anything to no. get to, for his affection. If, say you weren't married. Say I wasn't married. If you were not married. Um, I mean, I'd probably like be like a, like play it like I'm like a real, like a bro, you know? Like that's like my move. It's like, hey dude. Just call him dude a lot. Like I'm just like one, totally. of, I'm like one of the guys. I'm like a total friend. And then. Punch him in the like, face. He's like, oh, but you have boobs. That's, that was my, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I. Was that started, your strategy? Yeah. I started dating Ben when I was. 23 so it, that's pretty much where my like maturity level <laughs> stuff for yeah. flirting stuff yeah it's like hey dude hey, yeah dude. yeah i get it i think uh i think that's it so okay. do you think that would work well 26 year old uh bruce rowley on april 5th 2018 was arrested because he decided to rob a, the webster bank at the 200 division street in ansonia on um the day before on april 4th 2018 why did he rob this bank yeah i do want to know well he wanted to impress his uh celebrity crush taylor swift oh taylor S- loves bank robbers she does that's her thing obviously um i think he was hoping that she would you know write a song about it um so According to the Hartford Current, and this article is by way of Vice, um, which was written by Drew Schwartz, um, but he allegedly um, held up the bank in Ansonia, Connecticut for $1,600. That's not a lot of money, dude. That's not a lot of money. Rob a bank. Come on, make it worth it. You want to go to jail for $1,600? Yeah. That's crazy. I feel like there are a lot easier ways to make $1,600 that are legal. Yeah. Like maybe not, yeah, than robbing a bank. Yeah. And then what he did after he robbed the bank is he then rode over to Taylor Swift's $17 million mansion. Like on a bike? uh, What's that? On a bike? No, he had a a car. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) On a bicycle. (laughs) Goonie style. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Cindy Lauper played in the background. (laughs) Good enough. So he um, drove to Taylor Swift's $17 million mansion uh, in Watch Hill, Rhode Island, and he threw some of it over the fence. Not all of it, just some of it over the fence. <laughs> he was like, I gotta keep two hundred for me to put gas in my car. Yeah, even though her house is worth um, 10,000 times more than what he stole. He was just like, bink, there's <laughs> some money. Um, so he drove off, and then um, several people were able to identify him. He said that when he went over there, he, like, he it was the guy to- blasting "Shake It Off." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if that was your Rob a Bank music was "Shake It Off." Shake it off. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. Um, so apparently, he wanted to propose to her, but she wasn't home when and he also, got there. She doesn't know him. So um, two different people were able to identify him, and then the cops came to his house the next day and arrested him and sadly um 
Taylor Swift's love was unrequited, and to this day, there is no song about him robbing a bank for $1,600 <laughs> for her. That's my story. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Do you want to hear a crazy story? I would like to hear a crazy story. Okay, so my crazy story is one that you probably have heard of, and I think that all like true crime buffs probably know about, but like Okay. Like, especially because it involves celebrities. Okay. But because I, you know, I have like the memory of a of a goldfish. Uh-huh. <laughs> like for pop culture and for details. Like I actually have a really good memory for people or events in my own life, but when and it comes names. to like are you good with people's names? Not especially people's names, but faces. I'm like, 100% I know who that person is. If I've met you one time, I'm like, like I often happens in an audience where I'll be like, that guy was here last time. That guy was here last time. I know. Ah. I remember you. Are you, do you remember me? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, do, you, is, do you remember this joke? Because I definitely told it last time too. But I don't remember like if anything I read or watched on TV, it's like instantly gone. Like I am, any kind of media, I am like, it's gone. Um, so I may have heard this story before, but it was all new to me. And so the story itself is pretty straightforward, like the story of the bad stuff that happens, but it has some like crazy twists and like weird things. Um, and I felt like it was just like too good not to share. Okay. Okay. So this is a story of Dorothy Stratton. Oh, the Playboy model. Yes. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So this is one of those where... If you know the story... I'm not going to say nothing. Oh, no, not you. (laughs) I just mean in general. To the people out there, um, I may have some of these details wrong, so just, you know, look at our sources (laughs) um, on the website. And I actually got most of, or a lot of, kind of the outline and and a lot of the details from um, an article called Death of a Playmate, which was in the Village Voice um, in 1980 by this woman, Teresa Carpenter, and actually won a Pulitzer Prize. So... um, Although I have to say, reading it with today's eyes, so what is that? Forty years later, uh-huh. it's like I mean, this is a woman writing the article. I'm like, it's so sexist. Is it? <laughs> it's so. There are so oh, many ways a that women article about a Playboy model. I know. Like, there's one point where she describes like this woman Dorothy when she grew boobs, and it's like she I can't remember what she called them, like some kind of. Luscious lobes or something like that. (laughs) I was just like, you're a woman. Come on. (laughs) Disgusting. This is a Pulitzer Prize. Anyway. Okay. Dorothy Stratton. She is... Okay. Dorothy Stratton... Of course it won a Pulitzer Prize, though, by the way, because I'm sure that a bunch of men read the article and they were like, this was... Right. This is so smart. So engrossing. (laughs) And... There's just something about it. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, Okay. So Dorothy Stratton was born Dorothy Ruth Hoogstratton. In Vancouver, British Columbia in 1960. Her parents had immigrated from the Netherlands and she had a younger brother, John Arthur, and a little sister, Louise, who was born in 1968. And her father had left the family when she was very young and her family just never really had much money. And so in 1977, um, Dorothy was 17 years old. She was going to high school um, and she was working at Dairy Queen, probably, you know. She did the cones. Yeah, she probably did the, the dipped cones. <laughs> um, maybe she like held up the blizzards upside down. Like, nice. Very. I'm you sure have was, to do that, by the way. Did you know that you have to do that? I know. Do you ever see part the, of the look the on their face like, when oh. they do it? They're like, okay, like very perfunctory. Like, and I'm like, you don't have, I don't uh, care. Please don't. It's not like, something it's, I really I want is my thing to be held upside down. But yeah. Yeah. It's like, I get it. Like yeah. I've worked places like this. Okay. Uh, so she worked at Dairy Queen, and that is when she met 26-year-old Paul Snyder. And Paul uh, grew up in the east end of Vancouver, um, which was a pretty rough area of the city at the time, and maybe still now. I don't know. I've never been to Vancouver. I'd love to go. I hear it's beautiful. Um, his parents divorced when he was young, and he quit school in the seventh grade. And after the seventh grade, he was like basically on his own. In his late teens, he started lifting weights, and he went from, like, this skinny kid to, like, just kind of muscly guy. And in that article, um, they kept going on and on about how his, like, dark hair and mustache were, like, so well-groomed that, <laughs> that women just found him so attractive. He used a pomade for it. Yeah. a comb. <laughs> that luscious mustache. Um, so it said the women on the night circuit nightclub circuit found him attractive um so he started out as like kind of an event promoter and he was actually pretty successful as like an auto like auto show promoter but soon he was like became like a hustler and a pimp 
and he wore he wore like a mink he drove a black corvette and he wore a bejeweled star of david around his neck which gave him the nickname jewish pimp that's what they called him oh wow yeah um and then he also stole people's memes and <laughs> like, like the, the fat Jew. Um, That's a comedian joke. I don't think a lot of people know that fat Jew steals people's material. And their oh memes. no! If you follow the fat Jew, which you shouldn't, the or fat Jewish the, is his name. Oh, I'm sorry. It, yeah, I didn't. It's not. Yeah, this is what I'm calling him. That's what he calls yeah. him. Um, and yeah, then he calls the himself one? the fat Jewish. That's really horrible. Uh, I mean, there's so many of them, but just... Uh, uh, I think it's called Fuck Jerry. Yes, Fuck Jerry. Yeah, they you steal accounts, material from stop. comedians, and then they post it on their... Well, I think that they've had to get better about crediting, right? Right, but they're still not giving... They For a long time, they just flat out stole them. Yeah. And then they would like be super horrible if... Um, if somebody would be like, hey, that's my joke that I wrote, and you're making thousands of dollars off of it yeah and they don't give any anybody that they take the jokes from they don't give them they're like we're giving you exposure which i'm gonna tell you why guys it doesn't pay the rent (laughs) yeah unfortunately so anyway this is a beside the point but if you follow those kinds of accounts stop go seek out great comedians yeah just know that they're not oh they're so funny they're if you think they're so funny then you think that ten thousand other comedians are funny because they're the ones that actually wrote the joke right there you go stealing (laughs) (laughs) um okay so he was a Jewish pimp. Okay. Um, so Paul, he was like kind of on the outskirts of like the gang gang life in Vancouver. And, and, and like the serious gang members saw him as something of a lightweight. Like he was, he wouldn't touch drugs because he was like really afraid of being um, arrested. But he still was doing some like, I mean, obviously he was doing shady shit. Like he, um, he ended up losing money to some loan sharks and got hung out by his ankles from the 30th floor of a hotel Whoa. By, some, by some gangsters, and he was forced to leave Vancouver. So he went to Los Angeles. He started pimping, and um, he would drive his sex workers around in a gold, like a gold limousine that he bought when he got there. And he was like obsessed with old Hollywood, and he had like tried to like weasel his way any way he could into like the elite circles, but he was like no one took him seriously, you yeah. know? And apparently he was just like a total braggart, a real, I mean, he sounds like a super annoying guy to be around. He does sound very annoying. Yes. So he actually ended up giving up being a pimp because he wasn't making enough money. He actually had a couple oh, I thought of, you were going to say friends. Like <laughs> he couldn't make, he any, make friends. any friends being a pimp. <laughs> <laughs> Where are all these great pimp friends? Um, yeah, he actually had a couple of women who were working for him, who stole from him, which, great, good for them. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so he he returned to Vancouver in 1977, and he kind of was, like, decided that he wanted to return to, like, the straight and narrow. Like, he was like, I'm not, I, I want a legitimate job. But, uh-huh. I mean, everything he did was shady, but he was trying to not do illegal things. So one night, um, Paul and a friend of his went to a local Dairy Queen, um, and that is where he noticed Dorothy behind the counter. And he told his friend that girl could make a lot of money. And he got her number from another waitress and then started pursuing her pretty hardcore. And so Dorothy, on her part, he thought that she was like, he thought, she thought he was like brash, you know? And, yeah. And, but she kind of liked that he took charge. Like, I mean, he was nine years older and he was streetwise. And also she was 17 and he started buying her nice things and like clothing and jewelry. And he was like obnoxious in public, but Dorothy also found him like really sweet in private. Like he'd buy wine and cook dinner for them. And then afterwards... And she was 17. And she was 17. So sweet. I know. And afterwards he'd play guitar for her and it says, and then fix hot toddies. I'm like, so basically he just got her real drunk. I know. Um... But he, I mean, Paul, because he had wor- been a pimp all those years, he, like, knew how to play on young girls' vulnerabilities. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, here was Dorothy, and she legitimately thought of herself as, like, a plain Jane. Like, she was like, I was playing with big hands. That's how she thought of herself. Aww. Like, she was shy. Um, she wrote, like, really bad poetry. <laughs> um, and she really had, like, no other aspirations than, like, 
finding a job as a secretary. Like that's what she thought she was kind of destined to do. And, but then Paul, you know, was there and he's telling her you're beautiful. And which she was, she was gorgeous. She was like, she had like, yeah, she is. She was beautiful. Yeah. She had like girl next door looks and like, you know, an adult porn star body, like the right. kind of, you know, you know, that, that kind of beauty. Um, <laughs> so Paul, you know, he thought, okay, Dorothy has potential to be in Playboy. Like that is what mm-hmm. he looked at her and was like, I'm going to, she's going to, I'm going to take her all the way. Um, but he knew like, I'm going to have to slowly introduce this idea. Cause this girl is pretty innocent. Yeah. Um, she'd only had one boyfriend before and he had actually tried to promote women as playmates before because apparently there was like, um, at the time, if you discovered, if a photographer or somebody discovered a playmate or somebody who got into Playboy, it was like a thousand dollar finder's fee. Jeez. And so, which is of course the women didn't get that money, but yeah, um, that's like another form of pimping. Right. Yeah. So that was like, he was like, I'm going to, yeah, know, get this girl in Playboy. So he had actually used former playmates to work like the auto shows he'd promoted. And so he knew that a lot of these, the women who were former in Playboy, former playmates got into prostitution and drugs and dealt with managers who took advantage, advantage of them. And so he was like, I am going to like, kind of like shepherd her in. And, um, he actually, he escorted, it's so gross. He's 26, right? He escorted Dorothy to a graduation dance. Oh God. Um, and then as a graduation present, he took her to a photographer named Yu Meyer for her first professional photo, which is actually fairly tame. Like she was, it was like, she was doing some sexy poses, but she's wearing like this, like white kind of full length gown. Like she's not, um, but then a month later, uh, Paul asked, Meyer to do another photo shoot and this time nude. And Does it say anything about her parents? Well, it was just her mom. Oh. Um, cause her dad had oh, left. Right, right, right. And she was so, probably just grateful to have like a male figure. Yeah. And at the time, you know, she was, she had turned 18. She graduated from high school. Oh, so so th- basically, yeah. um, Dorothy went and lived with Paul gotcha. and, um, and actually, and she didn't tell her mom about the nude photo. So she, right. this guy Meyer took some, um, took her first nude photos and he said that she was nervous, um, but then she like quickly got into it. Like everybody kind of across the board, which is like, makes me so sad. Like, it's just like, she took direction really well. She was kind of like, um, they, somebody said she was like pliable, which is why she made a really good actress. Cause she could kind of like really take direction. Right. Um, she was just like eager to please is what makes me think is that she was like a girl who didn't, was too young to know herself, you know? Right. So anyway, so she got, she took those first photos and then he took her to, uh, Paul took her to another photographer whose name was Ken Honey, who actually had a relationship with Playboy um, to take more shots. And, and that guy, Ken Honey, actually insisted that Dorothy get a release from her mother because in Canada, the age of consent is 19. And so her mother, but her mother signed the form to allow him to take nude photos. Um, and in August, 1978 at 18, Dorothy was flown to LA to, for a test shoot with Playboy. So she like quickly rose in the Playboy universe. Her test shots were excellent. Like everybody agreed that she had something really special. Like not only was she beautiful, but she also was like a good actress and she just like was captivating on film. Mm-hmm. So from her first test shot, she was placed among the 16 top contenders for the 25th anniversary playmate. And she was named, um, playmate of the month for August, 1979. And pretty soon after she moved out there, uh, Paul had flown to LA and had proposed and, um, so Dorothy worked as a bunny while she like in between doing stuff, she worked as a bunny at the century playboy cub. And then where they told her, they were like, you have to exercise, um, cut your hair and change your last name. And the playboy company had really big plans for Dorothy. Cause they thought she was this like unique talent. Um, and they were often asked for by movie studios to send out playmate types um, uh-huh. for auditions. And so they started sending Dorothy for all of these auditions and she started getting roles on television, like here and there. I can't remember. I mean, there were TV shows that I didn't know. Right. Um, but she was doing really well, like right away she started getting work. And by the spring of 1979, she was busy modeling or filming 
And, um, and she actually, she was like, I mean, I think she was a bit overwhelmed. She asked a doctor for a prescription of Valium, um, because she was like having a hard time adjusting to this new life. Like it happened so quickly that she just like went from nothing to like a playmate model and like on TV and she was working at a Dairy Queen Yeah, in Vancouver and she's just like, Valium, that's right. And she also said that like, yes, um, Although it's not like, I, I mean, I say that I put that in there just to show that she was like having a hard time adjusting, but also there's nowhere that says that she was had like, had pain. a yeah, drug problem. Uh, yeah. She actually didn't take any other drugs. She really didn't drink very much. She was like a pretty straight laced right. kid. Um, aside from the nude modeling. Um, so, so Paul had started working a little in LA. Um, he was promoting male dancers at a disco and ha- like like promoting wet underwear contest. Um, but he was mostly counting on Dorothy. Like he, this was his meal ticket, you know, right. he, this was, he was like, he began pressuring her to set a date for their wedding and would remind her over and over that they had a lifetime bargain. And Dorothy on her part was unsure. And everyone around her was trying to talk her out of it, including Hugh Hefner. Um, but she said, like, he cares for me so much. He's always there when I need him. Like, I can't imagine being with anybody but Paul. Right. And so they were married in June of 1979. And Paul was growing obsessed with Dorothy's career. Like, he furnished their new apartment with photographs of her everywhere. Like, nude photos. And he got license plates on his car that said Star 80. Like, so 19, like she'll be a star by 1980. And he talked about her as like the next Marilyn Monroe. And his like, it's like, dude, what if you were a weightlifter, why don't you just go be a fucking model? Right. You go do all these things. Yeah. And like, don't, it just makes me mad. It's just so controlling and he's such a leech. Such a leech and just, and she was just so young. Yeah. That's the thing that gets me. So, like, she, it made her really uncomfortable, like, his, all of this, like, bragging him, talking about her being a star, because she felt like she had the weight of, like, the weight of the world on her shoulders, because she thought, not only am I, like, doing this for me, but this is for him, too, and if I fail, I'm failing both of us, and she felt like he had gotten her so far, gotten her there, and so she felt like she owed him, um, at Playboy, though, they kept Paul, like, completely on the outside, they thought he was, like, a creep and they rarely invited him to the mansion, even though Dorothy was there all the time um, for parties and it said to roller skate, which I just think is so 70s and early 80s. <laughs> you apparently she come was come over to roller skate. Yeah. Apparently I'm she so was much. like a really great roller skater. Uh-huh. I don't know. Um, and Paul really resented that he was not included. A good roller skate. Yeah, he was yeah. like, I just want to be on the wheels or have <laughs> I just want to do the backward slow dance. Um, <laughs> so Dorothy like was at the mansion all the time, um, but she wasn't like, you know, I think at the time and maybe still, I don't know, there was a lot of um, uh, sex happening at the Playboy Mansion. I and think a lot probably of, still. Probably still. Probably and so, still. Yeah, but I think a lot of a lot of times it was expected that the women would, would have sex with uh, like celebrities who were there. Right. And so Dorothy didn't. Um, and she actually, she looked down on, on a lot of the women who did. Um, but because it was starting to look like she was going to have a real film career, even though she wasn't having sex with people, which was kind of expected, she was moved into Hugh Hefner's inner circle because, um, so playmates who were moved into legitimate acting were pretty rare, still pretty rare. Um, and it especially was especially important to Hugh Hefner because he was looked at as a Hollywood outsider. Like right. even though he was, you know, very rich and he, all the stars came to his parties, they didn't respect him. And he knew that like, right. He thought that he'd have some kind of like legitimacy if he became a star maker, like if he could. So like in many ways, Paul and Hefner were, were both the same. Using her. Yes. Yeah. They're both using her as their ticket. Right. So Hefner chose her as the playmate of the year in 1980. And as Dorothy's star rose, Paul became more strict and demanding. Um, he wanted control over her finances um, and movie offers, even though she had a business manager and an agent. He was like, I want complete control. I want to, like, okay, everything that comes through. Um, he wanted her to borrow $200,000 from Playboy so that they could buy a house. Um, 
<clears throat> but she resisted because she was like, this is just something else that Paul wants to keep me like under his thumb, like right. something else that I owe him. Um, and so then it appeared that Dorothy was about to make her big great break because she was cast in the movie. They all laughed starring Audrey Hepburn. That was going to be directed by Peter Bogdanovich. Do you know him? I actually don't, but if you named some of his movies, I would probably know. Yes, so he directed. If you saw saw him, you would be like, he's has a very recognizable yeah. like character face. He's been he's also acted a lot, but he directed the Last Picture Show, oh, um, which okay. he won an Oscar, mm-hmm. um, or maybe was nominated. Um, he directed Paper Moon, and oh. he directed The Mask. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he's directed a ton of films. Um, and this, do you mean mask or do you mean the mask? I mean the mask with Jim Carrey. Oh, okay. I, I was thinking you were talking about the movie with Cher about Rocky. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Mask. Mask. Okay. Oh, is it just mask? I think it's just called mask. Wait, Jim Carrey one? No. Jim Carrey is the mask. <laughs> and then Cher and Eric Stoltz. Yeah, movie about Rocky. God, I can't remember his last name. I can't remember. We watched it Rocky in school. Something, but it was um, that one's just called Mask. Yeah. Okay. Not just Mask. He directed <laughs> the, the Mask. mask. Okay. Got it. Um, and he directed a lot of like kind of um, rom coms for the time. Gotcha. Okay. So, but okay. this one was starring Audrey Hepburn. Okay. So Bogdanovich um, brought Dorothy to his house uh, two or three times to read for the role, and was really impressed by her acting skills. But the movie was supposed to film in New York, but Paul wasn't allowed to come along. So I think he really wanted to, but it was a closed set. And she was like, you're just going to be in the in the way. Like, this is my big break. You need to stay home. So he did. And so while they were on the set, Dorothy, who was now 20, began having an affair with Peter Bogdanovich. Oh. And it was kept pretty quiet because he had previously had an affair with a very young Sybil Shepherd, and it was not received well in the press because they were like, here's this older director who's taking advantage of, of these younger ingenues, you know. Um, but Dorothy was doing really well in the movie. Like in one scene... The people who working there, like editors, were like, she was particularly stunning. Like, it was one of those scenes that could, like, make a career. He said that everyone in the screening room saw her star quality. Like, Bogdanovich was so enthusiastic about her that he actually called Hugh Hefner um, to tell him that he was going to expand Dorothy's role and um, to give her more exposure. And so then Dorothy, um, sorry for that, this ringing noise that keeps happening. <laughs> I'm like trying to use stainless steel straws. And so I keep running into it. Don't so I just apologize want you to know, for saving the planet. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. I just want you guys to know I'm a good person. Yeah. <laughs> and we, every time you hear that ringing noise, it'll be a reminder to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So Dorothy started putting her husband off. So she's having this affair. She would say that she was too tired to talk. Um, she wouldn't answer him back when he would say, I love you. And then eventually she started not answering his calls at all. So she flew to L.A. for a press appearance on Johnny Carson, and she wouldn't even meet up with him. And she did agree with meet with him in Vancouver the second week of May because her mother was getting remarried. And Paul became pretty rageful. And when they met in Vancouver, they fought after she she asked him for more freedom. She was like, I just need you to lo- loosen your grip. She wasn't asking for a divorce. She was just like, yeah. I need you to let let me go a little bit. And uh, But then, like according to Paul, they made up. They made love. Um, and then, but by late June, so this was May, and then by late June, Dorothy's attorneys had sent Paul a letter saying that they were separated physically and financially. And so I think that's just like, the beginning of a divorce, a lot of places, I don't know how it works in California, but a lot of places you have to be physically and financially separated for a a year before you can file for divorce. So I think that's Uh like saying like, I am marking this time. Like we are now separated. Um, so she had closed out all of their bank accounts. So, um, Paul like just couldn't get over being cut out of this fame and fortune that he had envisioned for himself. He actually tried grooming another 17 year old whose name was Patty. Um, to be exactly like Dorothy. Like he had her hair cut like Dorothy. He taught her to walk like Dorothy. He oh taught her to God. talk like Dorothy. And then he submitted a Playboy and they were like, no, you're crazy, Paul. We want nothing to do with you. Yeah. Um, and then Dorothy was also, Dorothy also cut Paul out of a deal that they had like arranged before this separation to sell these like prints of her roller skating. 
uh-huh. um, and he felt like that was like his last chance to make money. And right. so um, he suspected that she and Bogdanovich were having an affair, but he didn't, couldn't prove it. So he hired a private eye to document the affair um, because he wanted, his idea was that he was going to sue Peter Bogdanovich for like a breach of contract um, of like their marriage contract. Um, but Dorothy like wouldn't respond, like she was hiding behind the lawyers and Paul like basically became despondent when he couldn't get to her. So he started writing these like wild letters to her and to Peter Bogdanovich. Like he never sent them, but they found them. Um, but they were kind of like crazy. Like he was obviously unraveling. So Dorothy was continuing to take meetings. She, they had wrapped up filming on, um, they all laughed, but she was taking meetings about appearing in a bunch of films, but she started feeling guilty. Like she cried by herself because she felt, she still felt something for Paul. Like she, um, well, um, because of the way that he, groomed her she's there's no way that she's not going to feel some sort of guilt and yes. obligation to him yes well in in her mind she's so young he made her the star like he brought her to hollywood so you know even though he he didn't make her a star but you know right. I mean, she made herself a star but he got in her head enough to make her believe that to be true yes yes and she's 20 oh my god yeah um so anyway, so she she wasn't wanting to go back to him, but she just wanted to make sure that he was taken care of after the divorce. Mm-hmm. And so um, at one point she was in Houston doing promotion for the film and she called Paul and agreed to meet him for lunch on August 8th. And Paul was like, when she called him, this was kind of like their first, um, their first contact in a long time. So he was like, this is it. I'm going to win her back. Like she wants to, she wants to come back to me. He told his friends, like everything's going to be all right. But then they have this lunch date and it was like a complete disaster. Like Dorothy was like, Oh no, I'm not, I'm here to tell you, like I'm in love with Peter Bogdanovich and I just want to get my stuff. And I want to talk about a financial settlement. Like that is what her agenda was. And he was like, so he just like became unglued. He like found someone, um, and the classifieds who would sell him a shotgun. And so they met on August 8th. And then the following Wednesday, um, he picked up the gun. Oh, and then that yeah. night, he dropped by the phot- a photographer friend's studio. And he was, like, in a great mood. He was, like, he, and then he, like, randomly started talking about this woman, Claudia Jennings, who had been a playmate, who had died while a movie was in progress. And he was, like, you know, some playmates get killed and when that happens it causes a lot of chaos just like randomly out of the blue starts talking about that to who to just a photographer friend he was just like randomly there so this was like on the wednesday night and then um and and bogdanovich had found out about the private detective who was following dorothy but dorothy told him like don't worry about it like i think that paul and i are about to reach a settlement and it's better if i do it by myself and go and meet him Um, so she had agreed to meet him on that Thursday. So Wednesday he bought the gun Thursday. She was supposed to meet him. So she got to Paul's house around 1230. And we know that because the the private eye was following her. Wow. And the guy called Paul to make sure everything was okay. And Paul said, yeah, it's fine. And then the PI kept calling Paul throughout the day and never got another response. So around five, Patty, who is the 17-year-old that he had been grooming, who had moved in with Paul, right. and another girl um, came to the house because they were living there and saw that Paul's door was closed, and they knew that Dorothy was there because they saw her car, and they just assumed that Dorothy wanted privacy, so they left and went roller skating because that apparently is what everybody did. So <laughs> A lot of roller skating. A lot of so story. much roller skating in the story. Like, you didn't know. <laughs> Come for the murder, stay for the <laughs> roller skating. <laughs> roller skating. Um, spoiler alert, murder. Okay. Aye. So Paul also had this roommate who was a doctor, um, and he got home after his shift and noticed that the door was closed. And then right before midnight, the private investigator called Patty and was like, can you knock on the door? Because I'm worried. And she was like, no. Nah. Because <laughs> not... she didn't want to get like, yelled at. Yeah, or... she yeah. said no. So he actually was like, can I speak to the roommate doctor? And the doctor agreed to go and check. And when he knocked on the door, he didn't get an answer. And 
he opened the door and he found Paul and Dorothy uh, both dead. And Paul had killed Dorothy and then shot himself. And there are actually some really awful aspects of this murder, like really graphic, horrible things. And um, that is not my jam. So if you're interested in... in, Check out the article. Yeah, check out the article. It talks in detail. If you don't want to sleep ever again, go ahead and read that. I mean, it's just really gross and I don't care to talk about it. So he killed her. He killed himself. Um, So the private investigator was actually... Like, at, can I ask, was there, like, sexual assault? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The private investigator was at the house before the police because he had, you know, the guy had found. So he called Hefner. I think he was hoping to get some kind of, like, money or something. And then Hugh Hefner called Peter Bogdanovich, who, Hugh Hefner says, went into shock. And so after the murder, Bogdanovich paid for the funeral and the cremation and he flew Dorothy's entire family out to L.A., including her little sister, Louise, and who was, I think, 12 at the time. Oh. She was eight years younger. So Hugh Hefner and Bogdanovich were both at the funeral. They comforted the family and really kind of took them under their wing. And then a year after her death, the movie They All Laughed was released. And it was met with pretty disappointing numbers, as you can imagine, like a comedy and then this whole huge story about yeah, this woman who died kind of put it. like a... Yeah. So it actually, people now look back on it as like one of his best films, but at the time it was like, it was like quickly withdrawn from the box office. And Bogdanovich right. then was, he was so upset that he ultimately sang about $5 million of his own dollars into re-releasing the film and it bankrupted him. Wow. Um, and then in 1984, Bogdanovich wrote a book called The Killing of a Unicorn, Dorothy Stratton. And in it, he claims that Hugh Hefner sexually assaulted Dorothy Stratton in 1978 and that she had only married Paul because of Hefner's repeated advances. And so she had married Paul as like a way to make him stop, make him stop. Wow. And apparently in the book, it says like, um, like seduced or something. But the original, like when he originally wrote it, the original manuscript said raped but then they changed it. I mean, it was 1984. Because Hugh Hefner made them change it? Probably. Yeah. I mean, he says that they had like a fatherly, um, he was felt, was it like a fatherly thing? But I mean, right. it was kind of known that he uh, had sex with all of these playmates. So. Yeah. So, and this is another crazy thing. Okay. Oh, yeah. In 1988, Peter Bogdanovich married Dorothy's sister, Louise. Oh my God, I remember that now. When she was 20. I Now I remember that. That's nuts. Yeah, so he had paid for her to go to like private school. She was 12 and then in modeling classes after Dorothy's death. And then, and they were married for 13 years. So crazy. Wow. Um, her death inspired two motion pictures. Um, in 1981, there was a TV movie called The Death of a Centerfold. And in 1983, um, there was a movie called Star 80. And then, um, like, the song Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers uh-huh. is about her. Um, I so never knew is that. The I'm Best Was Yet to... to Come. I know, I never knew that either. Whoa. Uh, the Best Was Yet to Come to by Brian Adams and um, a song called Cover Girl by the Canadian rock band Prism. Who, huh. Had, I don't think Who I are, know like, your favorite, favorite band ever. I guess. Yeah, so that is the story of wow, Dorothy Stratton. Crazy. It's crazy. It's heartbreaking, um, but it's also so salacious because it has all those celebrity. So look up Peter Bogdanovich because I, it's like you know the name, but then yeah. when you see his face, you'll be like, oh, that guy. And I remember there was like a couple years ago there was a whole like eight part series documentary I think on Amazon about Hugh Hefner. Oh, and all okay. of that. I feel like all of that was included. Yeah. But of course, they kind of, in the documentary, they paint Hugh Hefner as like a hero. Oh, right. Of course. But uh, <laughs> I don't think he was. Mm. Let's just say that. Me neither. Man. Uh, hey, Sally. Yes, Jen. Um, remember the other day when you messaged me and you were like, have you read the um, write-in that just came in? Yes. And I hadn't read it yet, um, but I was like, no, no, no. So I was standing in line. Uh, at the Fulton County Courthouse, which sucks. It's oh. not fun. What were you doing? I had to file. What did you do? do? <laughs> I didn't do it. It was a tenant did something real bad, 
and I had to file an eviction. And um, so it's not fun. That's what I do during the day. I'm a property manager, and sometimes not fun things happen, and I have to go down to the courthouse, which yeah. blows. So anyway, so I was standing in line, uh-huh. and I decided to like, pull up my phone and read the story, and oh my God, it made me laugh so hard. I was like shaking in line. Yeah. Like, sh- and people were looking at me like, Thinking I was like crying because I was like answering an eviction or something. <laughs> but really, I was just like trying so hard to hold the laugh in, but it was so funny. So, this was a write in um, from a listener. Her name is Diane Gallagher. Yes. And um, I love Diane so much. Yeah. So, Sally actually knows her. Yes. Um, and kind well, well, I mean, we're, well, the, we're, we're like, we're, we've known each other on the internet. You know each other on the internet. Diane okay. um, was a stand up comedian, and I don't, I, so we never met, but we I like I knew of her, uh-huh. and in the way that like you kind of know of a lot of, especially you know this was five or six years ago, and so you are, like as a woman, especially like when I was a woman, I was on the road, and you know about other women who are like we were. I think we were both kind of middles, and she was in Texas, and so we knew a lot of the same people, and so I knew her name, and then um, I saw that she had written this article, and it was called "We Don't We Didn't Want Kids." And it just came like at a time in my life and it was talking about how she and her husband didn't want kids. Uh-huh. She wanted like, they wanted to be able to like live this kind of carefree lifestyle. They had agreed on that from the beginning and they um, like, you know, she wanted to be able to do comedy when she wanted to. Like, it was yeah. just like, this is not the life I want. This was not the life I want. And then she got pregnant and she was like, oh wait, I can still have this life, but now I, we're going to have a kid. And they both yeah. like kind of, it was like, just it was the first thing that made me think like, yeah, you you, you can, can change your mind. Yeah, you can do both, or oh, you yeah. can change your mind. Like it's okay to like, it's okay for kids to be a thing that you want. Like I kind yeah. of felt like, especially as a woman in a in a male dominated field and being a road comic, there's so few women. Um, it's hard. Yes, it's for hard, Canadians, and so it's kind of like when you're a a woman who's a comic, it's uh, having a baby is. Very difficult, and it's not typically embraced in no. the culture. Oh, I had at all. so many people who were yeah. like, "All right, see ya." Like, yeah, guess you're guess you're done, you know. And and I had to kind of like realize, like, okay, so what if I, you know what I mean? Like, I my goals can change and my life can change, and I or I can decide to still do stand up and have a baby. Uh, but it was this was I don't think Diane knows that, but it was literally the reading her article like had me in tears just like oh okay it was kind of my first thought of like I could have a baby and want it and it's an okay thing to want so anyway so um that's amazing yeah Diane you are responsible for Max that's so awesome (laughs) Diane I had no idea Oh my God. And you were also responsible for making me laugh so, so hard. Yeah. So I am so excited for you to read. So her Her. love story is this love story about true, true friendship. And, uh, here goes, oh, and there's a disclaimer that, um, that, that this story is a little gross in nature. Okay. So I, yes, I actually wanted to say, because I know, especially this is, this is for anybody who is, doesn't like poop talk. Like, yeah, I, I, and I'm just saying this upfront because I know my friend Grace, who I talk about a lot, she hates it, which I love it. I mean, I uh-huh. could talk about poop all day long, but if you <laughs> don't like it, then, then just don't listen, but try. Cause it's funny. It's really funny. But also I just want to put a warning up. That's what, that's what this is going to be about. So okay. I hope that's not, that's not a spoiler. So here, here's her story. Um, Michelle and I met at a work, uh, met at work and developed a quick bond over our hatred of our boss and our immense love for dark eighties, new wave music. Dope. Um, one night about a year into our friendship, we decided to go bar hopping and dancing on a popular street of dive bars in Houston. Uh, we started early, so there wasn't a large crowd at the bar. Uh, I'm sorry. We started early, so there wasn't a large crowd at the first bar. Um, but we ordered drinks, and within a few minutes, I felt that awful, sudden twist in my gut that signified an emergency bathroom situation was imminent. It's that kind that everyone dreads. The one, you know, that even though you normally never do this in a public restroom, this time you would not have a choice. <laughs> have you ever had one of those, Sally? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so she... Uh, 
She said, I sighed and accepted my fate and parted myself to the restroom. I walked into the restroom and to my dismay, it was very small with only two stalls. So I sit down and start my business and go ahead and imagine the worst because that's how bad it was. And then to my horror, I hear a sudden burst of voices as a crowd of young women barge into the restroom at the same time, like a fucking bachelorette party. (laughs) Those are her words. Uh, Maybe five to seven women together talking and laughing and then like a record scratch. They all went silent. (laughs) Just so Just like, oh. She says, I couldn't see their faces, but I'm sure they were all wide-eyed and making ill faces at each other. Like, what the fuck? is going on in there <laughs> um, who died <laughs> nobody say anything um, but they did not leave I heard one bravely enter the stall next to me and while others silently waited their turn to see what was what, <laughs> this, this part is so funny uh, while the other silently waited their turn to see what kind of rotten-ass school was going to emerge from my stall <laughs> I had a pep talk with myself um You have to own this, Diane. Toughen up, flush the toilet, open the door, and look up at their faces and not the floor. Give them a fuck it shrug. (laughs) Wash your hands and leave. And she said, and that's what I did. That's so funny. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, at a certain point, you do have to just own it. Right. We all fucking have these moments. Everybody poops. Everybody poops. Everybody poops, right? (laughs) Like, it's your fault for staying in here. Yeah. Like, if you walk in a bathroom and somebody's obviously pooping and it's a small bathroom, you walk back out and then you wait for them to leave and give it and some time. And that's what the bathroom is for. Yes. Why are we pretending that that's not for using the bathroom? It's not just for pee people. It's like. also for poo. <laughs> She's... She said, and that's what I did. And then I walked right up to Michelle at the bar and I said, I shit, it stinks. We have to go. That's what I said. And it's important to read that line again is what she said. So I'm going to write it again. She said, I shit, it stinks. We have to go. Michelle didn't say anything. She just gave me a quick nod and urgently told the bartender to close our tabs. I refused to look at the restroom doors and we rushed out the front door and hurried to the intersection across the street to hit the next bar. As we were waiting across the street, she finally said, Diane, what happened? Why did you shit in the sink? (laughs) (laughs) And what? And she said, what? I asked. And she goes, you shit in the sink? She said, asking again. And then, um... Diane said, oh my God, Michelle, is that what you thought I said? You thought I said I shit in the stink, uh, shit in the sink, we have to go? (laughs) Yes, that's what she thought I said. And her immediate reaction wasn't A, horrified disgust, B, demanding explanation, or C, even laughter. She had my back. And she was like, yep, let's get you out of here, you shitty little villain. (laughs) (laughs) The questions can wait. When I explained what really happened, we both laughed really hard, followed by a truly sentimental moment where I got a little sappy and said, Michelle, you're my best friend and I love you. And we (laughs) hugged and laughed more. I resisted telling that story as the maid of honor at her wedding because I'm not a lunatic, but I've been holding on to the story for so long. I just really wanted an excuse to tell somebody. Hope you guys got a giggle out of it. Oh my God. God. We did get a giggle out of it. I love that. Your friend's amazing. Michelle, you're amazing. (laughs) And yeah, like that is like true friends don't get embarrassed. You're like, yeah, okay, you shit in the sink. Let's go. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I just love that her, yeah, like her immediate reaction to what she thought her friend was, Diane was saying, I shit in the sink. We have to go. She's like, all right, no problem. Let's close the tab. Let's get you out of here. Oh my God. amazing Jen should we do things that are dumb and things that we love let's do it okay I'll go first okay um so remember I had that job interview so this is all wrapped up this is gonna be one of those things you know like we're like two-sided yeah it's dumb and we love it okay um so remember I had that job interview? Yes. I got the job. Yes. Yes. I already knew that, but I was feigning yeah. surprise <laughs> for the podcast. Can you even believe Wow. wow. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited. I'm also, you know, it was a hard decision. Like I said, it was, I haven't worked in an office in 10 years. Office only. She's putting papers and <laughs> using pencils and stuff. You don't okay. have pencils in office Probably not anymore. pencils. I don't think so. Papers and files. Computer. 
Um, but I think it's be good. I'm really excited. It's like a, a job that I, I think it kind of like really fits my skills and blah, 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 blah. But, um, so I am excited about starting to work, but I also, what's dumb is like, I'm actually very sad about not being home with Max anymore. Yeah. And, um, and I, so I have, you know, I've always like just stayed home with him part time. And like in the beginning, it was out of necessity. Like I, we couldn't afford full-time childcare and I did not want to stay home. Like that was actually one of the deals I made with Ben before we had a baby was like, I don't want to stay home. This uh-huh. isn't for me. I don't like, and then we got to it and it was like, well, I'm a freelancer and I can't make enough money freelancing to like to cover for- childcare in New yeah. York city. So we had two days, we had a nanny two days, um, in New York. And then when we moved here, I was like, you know, we could have put him in daycare full time, but I just was like, Oh, I actually kind of like yeah. hanging out with him. He's like really fun. And yeah, I like exploring so the city with him and he's, you know, a little person now. So he's actually fun to do stuff with. And yeah. So I've just like, re- you know, I, it's surprising to me that I have enjoyed that because I didn't think so. It was like, it is the most frustrating, exhausting thing that I've ever done, but also like the most rewarding. And, um, and so, yeah, so I'm like, we call it Max and Mom Days, and Max gets Aww. really excited because he'll be like, what kind of day is it? <laughs> I'll say Max, Max and Mom. Oh, that's yeah. so cute. And oh, so, man. so yeah, so that's my dumb thing and the thing that I love. Like, I, I, I love that I'm able to just, like, start a new thing and that, you know, I also love that I have a partner that, like, is like, whatever you want to do, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but I'm just, yeah, I'm a little sad that I'm gonna miss some of my time at home even though this job is gonna be super flexible and he's gonna be okay and everything's gonna be great yes yeah so congratulations thank you on your job yeah that's amazing um okay so my something dumb is that um sally got a job no kidding. Jen, you said it was okay. Last time for me. Less, what about Jen and Sally Day? What about our days? So, um, I don't really... Well, okay. Um, my something done today is something that's in the news today, and it's a big deal, and I wish people would pay more attention to it and also think it's a big deal, but the Amazon is literally burning right now. I just learned about this. It's crazy. And it's been burning for days, right? Or weeks. Yes. And there's no, very little media coverage on it and very little people are doing anything to stop it, but it's something that is, um, our, you know, it's, it's an important ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, or like 99% of these fires are, um, from human actions, either on purpose or by accident, which is insane. And the Amazon forest produces 20% of the world's oxygen, which is what's the planet's lungs. And if the, if we lose the Amazon, we are all in danger. Right. And so everybody needs to take this seriously. Every country needs to take this seriously and we need to do something immediately to stop it. I'm looking at CNN right now, and according to Christian Poirier, who's the um, program director of the nonprofit organization Amazon Watch, he says that um, the Amazon is incredibly important to our future for our ability to stave off the worst of climate change. We're looking at untold destruction, not just of the Amazon, but for an, an, our entire planet. So it's it's scary stuff, and it's super important. Yeah. Um, so please, um, let's everybody do what we can. Um, and so my thing that I love, my things like, are, are actually too. Dumb? <laughs> no, that was the dumb thing. No, I know. Oh, okay, <laughs> that was the dumb thing. The thing that I love, um, is, is which is a total shift, is the other day I told a story about how the thing that I loved was my friend Justin. Um, Clemens that I run into from time to yes, time. Yes, he was so sweet he, about his wife. I know. And every time I ask him how is his wife, he always says, um, she's too good for me. Yeah. I don't deserve her. She's the love of my life. And it's so sweet. So I told him the other day when our podcast aired, that episode aired, I just sent him a message. I was like, hey, there's a little thing about you at the end. Yeah. You know? um, and so then I guess um, he had shared it with his wife because she sent me this Facebook message. And I'm going to read it to you now. Um, hi Jen, Justin just shared your podcast with me. Thank you so much for sharing. I am legitimate. I legitimately started crying at my desk. Uh, don't worry. Most everyone was gone. Life has 
A life always has these little ways of reminding you how lucky you are, and your mention of Justin was most certainly that for me. The funny thing about what Justin said to you is the exact way I feel about him. I'm so lucky and not really sure why I was given him as a gift. He reminds me all the time, mostly by his actions, that being positive and happy is a choice. And I try to carry it with me as much as I can. I love him so very much. Thank you for the shout out. I never doubted doubted his love, but goodness, it did touch my heart. Oh, isn't it? I, the same? I know. Yeah, I then so I was. Sweet. I wrote back to her. I was like, "Oh my god, no! I'm crying!" <laughs> point. I like immediately started crying when I read it. It's the sweetest thing. I they're the sweetest couple, and their positivity just makes me want to be a better person. Yes, I agree. Um, let's all so be better. People. Let's all be like Justin and um, Lauren. Let's. Justin and Lauren for president. Yeah. <laughs> Together. Like one. Like, you know, like those joint Facebook accounts. They'll right. be like joint president of the United States. Yes. Let's do that. Let's do it. Um, so that's our show for today. We yeah. hope you guys... Do you have anything else you want to add? No. Thank no. you for listening. Thank you for listening. We dumb love you guys so hard. We dumb love you so hard. Have a great week. Dum, da-dum, dum, 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 d